Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. We are recording remotely once again, owing to the coronavirus pandemic and all of the social distancing concerns it places upon us. Um, We want to start off the show just by discussing how this is impacting our own work and uh, what has changed and what frustrations are still there during this time. Um, Noah, you always have something to say about your job. So. Uh, wow. Uh, that, that could not have gotten more backhanded, but I respect <laughs> it. No, it, I we appreciate <laughs> your contribution and your perspective. Like I said, I respect it. Um, <laughs> honestly, nothing has really, um, nothing has changed in terms of the actual job I have to do because when you have the population of students that I have, it's not really teaching. It's appeasing a hundred egos that are very inflated and get wounded very easily. So that part has not changed at all. Um, It's been nice to be able to demonstrate, you know, that some of my hunches about which of my kids actually put in any effort and, and which of my kids are just kind of coasting through and expecting me to do all the work for them, that kind of thing. Uh, a lot of those have turned out to be true. So it's nice to feel validated that way. But, um, in some ways I was always kind of made to teach in this way. I like having the, the slight distancing that having objective assignments and not having participation grades and that kind of thing enables me to do because then the focus is more on okay what's an effective uh way for me to not just transmit the information but ensure that you know that um that i'm here for you that i care about you and how your family is doing and all that stuff uh of course as far as my bosses are concerned it it, that is still a, a crap show but at least the teaching itself is fairly stable now i'm curious are you doing like video classes or is it just you have a lesson that you're putting out and they access it however um the latter i am steadily being asked to do more video classes but here's the thing um a bunch of my classes happen before noon and most of my kids aren't up before 12 p.m so i refuse to do video classes on the basis that uh unless that either they're not going to show up or if they do they show up you know still in bed so i'm not particularly interested in seeing that in real life i'm no more interested in seeing that in zoom Got so it. that 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 pretty much puts the kibosh on that so in a way it sort of less of your focus now is on like wrangling students and making them pay attention in class and it's more just about the content uh, no, it's still about wrangling students. It's just wrangling students to actually do their work. Um, we've got a bunch of kids that, you know, they're they're not as good at technology as they think they should be based on the generation that they're in. Uh, so I've gotten things like uh, students getting very snippy because they reply to a do not reply email 
and they think that I should have gotten it anyway, or kids claiming that they, uh, you know, saying I didn't check today for assignments because we don't have class today and me replying, well, yes, but I posted it yesterday and sent you an update twice. So I know that you should have seen it by now. There were always kids who took it very seriously, of course. But now after a few weeks, I think more and more kids are figuring out that the same bag of tricks isn't going to work when it's online and you don't have as much of a gray area to step in. And with my population of students, that is actually very necessary. I have a, I have a, a population of students that need to be operated, uh, that you have to operate with them as objectively as possible. And we have that finally. And uh, they are not happy with that because it means they can't charm their way out of trouble now. Hmm. Um, Lou, your workplace is still shut down, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's closed. Um, we're still closed. We're starting to work on plans for reopening. And so most of my work this week has been um, like figuring out mathematical models for for entrances and um stuff that's really trying to get and trying to develop a a plan that'll work for whatever the conditions might be because even though we're trying to plan for an opening um we don't know what those specific conditions are because the government has told us basically nothing other than get ready Um, so we don't know what capacity will be. We don't know what, um, guidelines we will have. And based on stuff that's already opening or reopening, um, around the world and in town, I have a lot of concerns about how that's going to look. Yeah. So like the protests, for example, and, and too many people out there just seem to feel that it's their God given right to be able to infect whoever, whenever, and any kind of restrictions on their movement, like signs about which direction we recommend you go in the store, and they lose their minds about this kind of thing. And so trying to balance the understanding that we are going to have to open again with the fact that conditions are going to be as dangerous for the most part, in that we don't have a vaccine, we, there's no um effective treatment. We still have a really terrible healthcare system. Once we open, we're going to be opening to the same conditions. Just more people might opt to wear masks. Um, but we can't enforce that kind of thing. So working on that and it's, yeah, it's, it's nerve wracking because I'm trying to predict what human behavior will be in the world upside down. Right. And humans are, um, Famously unpredictable. They, um, <laughs> as you've talked about, there's a sort of disregard for rules among a subset of the population, but there's just even in the best of uh, circumstances, you're going to get people who slip and, you know, break the rules, not, not even meaning to, um, no matter what sort of guidelines you can create for that situation. Um, I guess just to round out this segment from, for my part, my work is largely the same. I work in a nursing home. Um, we are, we've been shut down for visitors since, uh, mid March, probably before the state was. Um, so to my knowledge, there haven't been any cases with like an employee or, uh, a resident, which is 
good, but also there are, I, I see all these stories in the news about places that haven't done the best job of informing their employees when a case has occurred. And Mm -hmm. so I am wary about that, but I guess we we discussed before recording and to let the listeners in behind the scenes. Now we wanted to sort of spend a little time discussing just, um, what's going on in the news and in uh, current events rather than necessarily focusing on one big theme throughout this episode. Um, so I guess you alluded to it uh, already, Lou, the idea that there are these protests going on in, in various cities. And these are small protests that have been given, I, I think, outsized attention just because Nobody else is gathering in public these days. Um, like if if there were sporting events going on, I'm not sure how much time would be given to um, the like 200 people in a city of 200,000 that gather on a street corner. You know, if it's even that large a crowd uh, here in Rochester, like there weren't all that many people at the local protest. Yeah, it's like a few dozen at most uh, in town, which good on them. More power to you, I guess. But Noah, you had said um, we were discussing that the idea that now governments feel a need to respond to these protests, however small a fraction of like actual public sentiment they represent, because poll after poll shows that people are in favor of continuing social distancing until we get this thing under check. That there is not the widespread demand for reopening that these protests and the breathless coverage of them would have you believe. I think the, the whoever is actually sort of pushing and prodding people to do these things, because you just know that there's somebody, uh, even a bunch of somebody's pulling these strings. Um, I think they've been very smart to make sure that nobody who is remotely political or partisan is attached to them because this country will always have a problem with protests like these getting, uh, as you said, Ryan, outsized attention. I mean, when the Tea Party was just a few dozen people it uh, before it, it really completely blew up, it was still the demand on several news channels that, you know, the presidential, the, the administration had to still respond to that. And because they're arguing for the interests, whether they know it or not, of the moneyed and the powerful – they're getting crazy amounts of attention. I do wonder, like you said, if we had, you know, baseball or foot or not football, I guess, baseball or basketball going on right now, if that would matter at all. But I think it would, because I think there's a push to use these as the lens through which we look at everything. And it's absolutely the case. I mean, um, for the few dozen that were here in Rochester, apparently the sheriff is supportive. You know, oh, a person good. who is engaged in public safety. Democratic Sheriff Todd Baxter. That's noted that's, lifelong that's Democrat. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah, that guy. That you guy. said that like like there hasn't been much official support for these protests, at least among elected officials, aside from like the president's offhand comments, you know, whatever he decides to tweet on a given day. Um, mm-hmm. which I'm not sure what to make of that. It hasn't yet become the sort of 
hotly partisan. If you're a Republican, you support this thing that I think some have the impression that it is. If I'm making sense. Yeah. Because the polling will show that even Republicans are largely supportive of these measures. You know, even in Texas, they're largely supportive of this. But it's it's mainly just a small group of elected officials and, you know, these scattered protesters who feel that it is necessary to reopen now. Yeah, I, I'd say that's like it it's if one thing comes out of this that you know we learn as a society is that we basically all, all the media does is manufacture consent for the policies of the upper class and capitalist class. Because basically what this coverage is, is it's a media circus the same way that uh, weird cow guy in the West, I really don't remember what his name was, but he took over that like national park. The, the famous weird cow guy, yes. Oh, oh <laughs> yes. Um, the Bundy. Uh, Clive and Bundy. Yes. There we go. There we go. I, I was like, it's Bundy, but the only Bundy I could think of was Ted Bundy. I was like, that's not right. Noted um, non-relation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, so it's like the same kind of thing where, where a minority of people actually believe or support whatever policy these, you know, they are far right in essence. Um, far right protesters are, are whining about, but because their interests ultimately align with capital class in that we should basically expose ourselves to hazardous conditions in order to make them money, they're going to keep supporting it. And they're going to say, well, maybe they have a point. I see kind of where they're going. Um, and it's, it doesn't reflect reality or what the majority of us think or want, um, but it's a narrative that they find convenient. So they're just going to keep talking about it. I think the emphasis that you're putting on narrative is actually really important there because so I've, I've begun to suspect over the past couple of weeks that part of the reason that other countries are kind of handling this a little bit better than the U.S. is that um, the U.S. has a national mythology. And we talked about this a little bit uh, on last week's episode that we just we just win over everything. We just overcome every problem. So, you know, the the civil rights movement happened and now racism is over, you know, or uh, the the once you passed Medicare and Medicaid, then there is no further need for an expansion of the welfare state that once you do something, that's that. And and you're just kind of supposed to move on and find the next thing to fight. And I think most other countries, because they're older and their societies have been through war stuff, uh, they've been through wars, they've been through more kind of generalized disasters and so on. I think there's a feeling that, you know, we actually do need to buck up as a society and take this seriously because otherwise we're all at risk. And in the US, there's still we we really haven't had that conversion as a country. Like we might be beginning to have it now. Um, but what you're seeing right now, I think, is the natural reaction of a lot of people uh, to having the fact that it turns out that there are certain things that just yelling USA doesn't fix. Having having that happen in real time, I think, is breaking a lot of minds right now. And once we progress beyond that, then, like you said, Ryan, um, that we might see the green shoots. We might be able to get out of this. Okay. Right. There's a, 
a subset of people who aren't sure what to do with the fact that history is still happening, I guess. Um, but um, I, I think another way in which this narrative is useful for, you know, the, uh, we'll, we'll say the Senate Republicans is um, because they have spent 40 or 50 years building an ideology that makes it impossible for them to accede to the sort of measures that would be necessary to continue the lockdown, which is more financial assistance for people. Um, Because they are unwilling to do that, you have to have this pressure to reopen because there isn't really an alternative that anybody will be happy with. Yeah, that's it. Like they're managing to force a lot of people's hands financially because they can say, well, you're not getting any, I'm sorry. A lot of States, even a lot of States. Yeah. Um, You're not getting any support from us. So what else are you going to do? And they're, they're making people shoot, make really hard decisions that really don't have to be made. The U S accounts for 4% of the total population in the world. And we have a third of the total cases of the coronavirus. It's absurd the uh, the degree to which this has been mishandled and exacerbated on purpose um, because of people's refusal to do the right thing and provide things that a lot of us had been asking for for all time: paid sick leave, healthcare that works, um, income based not on your ability to perform for capitalism. All of these things would have helped enormously, but we can't even get that minimum out of people when there's thousands of people dying. Yeah. You, you referenced uh, this like pressure to put on um, like really tough decisions on people, namely the idea that either you stay home and you don't get paid or you go back to work and risk your health and safety. But in a way that's just the whole ideology of choice from the beginning, you know, there's mm-hmm. this sort of idea that we have uh, famously the the choice to have private health insurance, you know, and isn't that great? And now during this pandemic, we see that that choice also entails losing it if, you know, you lose your job due to uh, coronavirus, you know, right. millions of people have already. Yeah, was- I wonder if we could rephrase the argument of choice with healthcare of did you choose to lose your job in this uh, pandemic? Does that, was that a choice you made? I think um, speaking of manufacturing consent, I think what you're already seeing is an attempt to manufacture consent for the idea that a ton of people are going to be jobless. You've already got, you know, the, the Bloomsburgs of the world and, and all of those other business publications doing everything possible to create this idea that, well, you know, it's sad, but in the post pandemic world, just, a ton of people are going to be unemployed for no appreciable reason, and that's just going to happen, and you're just going to have to deal with that. But I did want to say about specifically this health insurance thing, this isn't one of the articles that uh, we bandied about for this episode, but I do remember reading a political article that uh, talked about the need, how uh, the health insurance industry, because they are uh, incapable of not giving up the, of, of giving up the fight here how they're going to Washington to try to get bailed out. And the way that the subtitle, the subheading uh, phrased it was uh, they're seeking a bailout of the, and I quote, popular coverage. 
<laughs> which could not be more uh, des- designed as a as a phrase to dovetail with like you know Joe Biden's thing about uh, people who want to keep their plan can keep their plan or uh, Pete Buttigieg's uh, Medicare for all who wanted or all of these other kind of ways of of weakening the fact that w- as a country we've we've kind of grown past the need for private health insurance like we have the money and the age to not do it anymore. Right. I I think I saw this article as well. It was very specifically about the idea that that even Democrats had bandied together behind this proposal to protect the employer-sponsored healthcare system, which obviously has come under some pressure due to things like Medicare for All. And and I think it is in part that pressure that has resulted in companies saying – they're going to handle coronavirus uh, treatment for free. You know, they'll cover those costs because the idea of not covering them would only spark more outrage and more demand for a different system. Um, and this is sort of a last gasp to preserve that system because if it fails during this sort of crisis, then there's not going to be that sort of. Uh, uh, finger in the dam that prevents, you know, a system that would be much less amenable to the interests of Aetna or Blue Cross Blue Shield. Precisely. Um, just sort of um, continuing on with like the current events, I I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Andrew Cuomo, who has been sort of the um, heartthrob for some people, I guess. I, I don't yeah. like using that term to describe him, but um, yeah, there's people at work that have declared their love for him, and I have long questioned their um, sanity, frankly. But now I, I, I just kind of want to shake him. A I, bit. I really hate that he has become America's Italian father. <laughs> um, like, uh, first of all, if if we're gonna call somebody in the Cuomo family the heartthrob. I think Chris is objectively hotter. Um, but you have to do that. Uh, yeah, but, no, nobody made you do that, Noah. No, it's fine. Um, but the point is that, I mean, this is a man who, I mean, I have personal dislikes of Andrew Cuomo stemming from everything. But during this crisis in particular, he's managed to project this image of just kind of basic competence while at the same time managing to screw the state long-term. And I increasingly feel that it's because um, he's either preparing himself for some weird conspiratorial uh, run at the presidency in this year, or definitely setting him up to run for it in the next one on a, an austerity platform that is going to make like uh, the most moderate democratic platform running in this cycle look like, you know, uh, Bolshevik. Yeah. Um, you, you A point talk- on the austerity thing. Okay. Because uh, when Trump was first elected, Cuomo went out of his way to say that he was going to raise taxes on millionaires in New York city and put in a wall street tax of some kind. I don't know. He went out of his way to do that in opposition to Trump. And in this budget cycle so far, he's given tax breaks to millionaires for their freaking super yachts. Um, He has cut hospital funding, cut school funding, cut basically any kind of public service possible while giving tax cuts at the same time. So he has completely reversed quietly that. 
And yeah, I don't think he's going to wait for 2024. I think he's aiming for 2020 at this point. Noah, you talked about his um, appearance of competence and it, it should be noted that like the bar for public competence has been <laughs> incredibly low uh, over the last four years. People are just dying to have somebody who can finish their sentences. Remember and, when people loved Sean Spicer? Ooh. They did? Yeah, I, they loved him. They were like, wow, he can complete sentences. He's And after he left and we got the mooch or whatever, we were like, whoa, I miss Spicer so much. Yeah, so Ryan, you're absolutely right. It goes back all four years. But yeah. also, like, the reason he has been on TV so often is New York has the worst outbreak in the country. And that isn't just because, you know, New York City is the most populous city. Uh, there have been all these stories about how New York was slower to respond than other major metro areas. They shut down about four days after the Bay Area, which had around the same number of cases at the time. And the Bay Area has not seen the explosion in cases that New York City has. Or Washington is another state that was quicker to act on this than New York. I, I suspect we're thinking of the same article here because I remember getting this in my email inbox. And again, I didn't read the whole thing. So I guess I'm just reduced to quoting headlines now. But it it mentions that, you know, Seattle and, and Washington State more generally, they listen to scientists. But in New York, it was um it, it was the business community that got asked first for everything. And if that's not reflective of Andrew Cuomo's approach to basically every policy question, I don't know what is. Like he manages it you said it exactly right, Ryan. The bar is set so low that somebody like Andrew Cuomo can look heroic just by, you know, like wearing a polo shirt and telling young people to stay inside. Yeah. Fuchi Fauci, Fuchi. Doctor what's his face? Uh got Brad Pitt to play him. For, for SNL. So, yeah, the, the bar is very, very low. Um, One other thing is there's been some pushback to the criticism of Cuomo's handling of this saying, you know, you know, we can't expect people to be perfect. You know, nobody knew what was going on at the time. But even like Mayor de Blasio, mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, was like pushing for a shelter in place order days before Cuomo said, OK, you can have it. And de Blasio hasn't handled this very well at all because, like, he went to the gym that same day. That That's pretty classic de Blasio. The only thing that's missing from, from making that a full de Blasio story is that he managed to, like, insult a major political constituency uh, <laughs> in the middle of his, of his gym visit somehow. Yeah. It's – you know what I think it is? It's um, – I mean, it, it really – Okay, here's the thing. If you're listening to this and you're local, uh, especially if you live in the city of Rochester, you should be incensed at your governor right now. And many of you probably are. And to be honest, some of you, if you might even be incensed for the wrong reasons. And in that case, I don't really understand what you're listening to punching out out of all the radio shows that you could be listening to right now. Um, Connections. Yeah, exactly. Or Lonsberry, probably. But anyway. Um, the thing is the, this budget that, and, and make no mistake about it. This is Cuomo's budget. 
uh, it's being pushed through the assembly and the Senate because they finally have a democratic majority, which means that Cuomo now has to actually write his own party much harder to do this. But it is cutting crazy amounts of money from hospitals, from education, giving all of that back to millionaires, like Lou said, for their yachts. So this is not a budget that any blue state has any business enacting. And yet we're going to have it in a state that desperately needs financial assistance for the working class, that desperately needs to put schools and healthcare back on the priority list. And instead, you have a governor who is, I, I, I don't get how you have so many people that are falling for this act. I mean, I do. But at the same time, if you read literally anything about what is going on legislatively in this state right now, I don't get how you don't see beyond the mask. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing about Cuomo that has been true since he took office is that he just has a natural instinct to like uh, kick left, you know, to distance himself from what he perceives as like a, you know, an impractical left wing that, you know, can't get anything done, which is why he has spoken out against the idea of uh, suspending rent payments during this crisis, even as mortgage payments, of course, have been suspended. So there's, you know, he does not want to be the radical in office. He very much views himself as the uh, adult in the room, so to speak. Yeah, the the center of politics in this country are hopefully going to realize that the policies they have been long supporting as being um, equal and liberal in that they're helpful for people to people. I I don't know that they're going to be able to stand up and say that when the thing that people have been wanting, which is protections for people who need it most isn't happening. Um, We're going to take a break here since it's been about half an hour. We'll come back after this break and we're going to focus on the sort of big theme that would normally carry through an entire episode. uh, Namely the idea that, This crisis will result in the rich getting richer and inequality widening. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Hey, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. We spent the first half of this show talking about current events, and I guess a current event, you could say, is over the past month, uh, something like 24, 25 million people have filed for unemployment, and countless more have gone unemployed but been unable to get through the systems which are overloaded and were you know cut down to the bone on purpose beforehand and at the same time the dow jones has had its best month in 43 years was it 33 yeah 33 i guess one question to lead this segment is how do we square those two factors the fact that you know, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which many people take as, you know, a symbol of what the economy is doing, has gone up, you know, after a crash in March, 
at the same time as all of these reports of unemployment and not really many signs of things going back to normal just yet? Well, that's a good question, Ryan. And to that, I will say the economy is fake. That's right. It is completely fake. It is made up. Nothing matters. That That's honestly not wrong. Um, I, I think I said this. We, I said this while we were off the air, but basically that you need to think about the Dow Jones not as an objective measure of literally anything at all, economic or otherwise. You need to think of it as a purely psychological measure of how the rich feel about their future. When they think that the guillotines are not coming, uh, the Dow Jones goes up. When they are afraid or sad or, or have a momentary, very tiny one-second burst of conscience, the Dow Jones crashes uh, because it can't handle you know rich people actually being human for a change. Um, so if the Dow Jones is going up while everybody else is getting screwed, then it means that the rich have figured out the exact way out of this, as you were saying before the break, Ryan in a way that will benefit them and no one else. They have figured out how to arrogate all of the possibilities of gain and aid and whatever to just themselves and leave everybody else out in the cold. I think what they've realized is that there is at least the potential, and we can say it's a likelihood at this point, that this crisis will mirror the last economic crisis, the one of uh, 2007, 2008. And in the end... What will happen is the rich people will be bailed out and everyone else will be left to you know, deal with the fallout on their own. Because after the 08 crisis, there was another surge in inequality, which had dipped very slightly when they were all losing their money on Wall Street you know, at the start of the crisis. But we now have record high inequality, and that is what is going to happen again after – all the dust has settled from this pandemic and the economic impacts of it. Yeah. The, the economy crashed uh, a few weeks ago or the Dow Jones and, and stock market crashed a few weeks ago because rich people thought for about two weeks that they might actually have to suffer consequences of uh, the pandemic because they, they might have to deal with time, risks that didn't pay off. Right. They might have to, yeah, they might have to deal with risk. At the time, um, global leaders and the elite, they were the ones that were getting corona and and COVID. Um, They were the ones that were getting sick. And now that they've all fled to their super yachts or private islands. Now that Boris Johnson is healthy again. Yeah, now that Boris Johnson is healthy again. um, And it's just the working class who are getting sick. Um, because they are getting sick. They are the people making up the majority of new cases are people who had to go to work because they work in either um, essential businesses or their bosses said, well, you're going to be delivering pizzas now. Th- those are the people getting sick. Right. And it's no longer the rich people. So they're fully comfortable with how things are because they have enough money to get them through regardless. And so they're comfortable. They can buy stocks. And here's the thing, not just that they have enough money to get them through this, but as we're going to get into, if they feel for even a millisecond that they don't have enough money or that they haven't hoarded enough wealth and kept it from everyone else, or that 
you know, they might not be sufficiently economically protected from the slightest downturn as a result of this in their bank accounts. They will go raid the public sector for it. They will take everyone else's hard earned money that they didn't do a day's work in their lives to earn and put it in their own accounts. They will take from the rest of us. Like, I hope that one thing that regardless of what formal politics that you have, I hope that one thing that we all take from this is that the 1% is not only absolutely not on everyone else's side, but that they know just how much every ostensibly bipartisan or public or whatever you want to call it institution is on their side and will bend over backwards to help them. Because that's the that's what we have. Uh, Anita said this a few weeks back. Once you have all this money and you and you can't spend it, all that's left to spend it on is on state capture, which is basically just bribing politicians to do your dirty work for you. And that's where we're at right now. Yeah. Yep. I think the concrete way in which this has uh, emerged is in the Paycheck Protection Program, which has taken the form of a whole bunch of loans ostensibly meant for small businesses, but which over and over again have been shown to land in the hands of businesses that aren't all that small. Funny how that happens. Noted small business, the Los Angeles Lakers. (laughs) Um, Right. I have a CBS News article here. Uh, Biggest banks prioritize larger clients for small business loans, lawsuits claim. Um, effectively what happened is these companies, which, you know, do more financial, uh, transactions and whatnot, they already have the sort of legal expertise on hand to make the most out of a bill like this, to know exactly whose palms to grease and how to make sure that these loans end up in their hands. Um, these companies have ties with the banks that were given responsibility for handing out the loans. And as a result, the loans go to companies that, you know, maybe need it, but we can say are less at risk than the sort of companies that ostensibly this was designed for. Yeah. That's the thing is, is the biggest concern with the, one of the reasons why people are, eager to return um, besides just their own greed is that um, if you are a uh, mom and pop store, for example, you have one location, um, you are a valuable resource to your community. And if your community isn't going out, it's not like the overwhelming majority of small businesses have some kind of um, safety net that would be able to get them through months of having zero revenue. So the, that was the original intention for this bill is, is to say, well, yeah, there's going to be some kind of support for, for businesses that don't have endowments or billion dollar loans abil- capabilities. Um, so here's a whole bunch of money. Please make sure you keep paying people so they won't go on an unemployment. And bigger businesses that do have investors and capital to burn through if they need to. They said, oh yeah, free money, let's do it. That, again, it comes back to the fact that for rich people right now, 
the federal government is a giant piggy bank. We saw this during the response to Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. We've seen this with basically everything that the armed forces do, because let's remember, we have now given in excess of a trillion dollars to a bunch of companies to build a plane that sets itself on fire. If you invented literally anything that did that, and you tried to like file a patent for it or sell it, you would get laughed out of the room. Nobody's buying that on you know Shark Tank. But uh, what is it? Lockheed Martin and all of these other companies can do that and get, what is it, like 10 figures out of the government for doing it? So it is a ridiculous mismatch that we're in here where a small business that might actually spend its money on the local economy that pays people that then spend their money in the local economy and that, you know, send their kids to local schools and drive on local roads and patronize the local library. Those people can't get money because Shake Shack is blocking them. I'm just picturing the idea of somebody pitching a fighter jet to Mark Cuban. I mean, I I feel like he'd basically just... um, be okay with he seems like an overgrown like seven-year-old so he'd probably be cool with it uh i'm gonna read from the cbs news article because it lays out what exactly happened here uh quote the program was focused on small businesses and generally opened to firms with 500 employees or less but the sba small business administration made a number of exceptions to those rules most notably for restaurant and hotel chains Other firms that many people wouldn't normally consider small businesses also got access to the program as well. Over 50 publicly traded companies have disclosed that they received more than $250 million in Paycheck Protection Program loans. Seven companies have disclosed getting $10 million or more in funds from the program, including the owner of restaurant chains Ruth Chris Steakhouse, Shake Shack, J. Alexander, Pollo Tropical, and Potbelly as well as computing firm Quantum and oil explorer Halidor Energy. Yeah, good luck with that oil exploring. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, and it's nice to have a list of places I'm no longer going to ever eat at, but I can't believe that they would be so brazen as to disclose it. Like in the, I'm not saying that rich people have ever been um, unwilling to admit to corruption, but I thought that given the messaging around the Paycheck Protection Program, this might be the one thing where maybe you just don't mention how you got the money. You just say it showed up. Like it might literally have gone over better if you said a leprechaun dropped it off at the doorstep and you just happened to be there to pick it up and put it in the bank. Well, that's an interesting metaphor. I think because uh, a lot of the companies that did receive unethically. Um, this paycheck protection money is that they are publicly f- traded. So I imagine that there's some kind of like law or whatever around um, where they're getting their money. Disclosure. Because um, some, yeah, yeah, some some organi- organizations, uh, companies, I don't know what words are. Um, they they have not, either not disclosed how much money they've gotten or not disclosed if they applied. Um, so it's kind of depends on who you are, I guess. Now, this sort of thing wouldn't be as big a deal as it is, if not for the fact that the original bill that created this program uh, put a cap on the amount of funding that could go towards it, meaning you know there is a limited sum of money that could be handed out. And that quickly ran out. So it quite literally means that one company's gain is another company that 
can't get anything from it. And that hasn't been the case in some relief programs seen, um, for example, in the UK, which is handing uh, helping companies pay something like 80% of their uh, paychecks or 80% of their wages, rather. And th- they haven't put that sort of cap on it. So the fact that uh, some large firms have taken advantage of this program has gotten scrutiny, but it hasn't, you know, excluded other companies. Lou, it's weird when you have to be complimentary of the British government. Mm. Lou, what's that thing you like to say? The, the thing that capitalism forces us all into thinking life is that it actually isn't. Uh, zero sum game. Yeah, exactly. And you know, uh, the whole point of the Paycheck Protection Program was that people wouldn't have to go on unemployment because, you know, we live in a country where if you're unemployed, you might as well say that you are a useless piece of society that should go jump off a bridge in the view of a lot of people. Um, so you didn't want people to have to suffer through that stigma. So you would protect their jobs and give uh, those businesses money to pay them. But because we live in a country that is that way, that also meant that it had the program had to be poison pilled from the beginning. And that is something that we talked a little bit about it last week, but I think it, it can't be emphasized enough how much uh, even the relief programs that we've been seeing have been construed in such a way that they can be easily uh, corrupted, that they can be easily used for nefarious ends. And they've been construed in such a way that it encourages these companies to do that. Because if you think that, you know, the management of any of these publicly traded companies didn't know that they had friends in the SBA, that they had friends at their commercial banking division and all this stuff that would ensure that they got their money regardless of what happened to anybody else, then you are extremely naive. Let's just put that out there. These businesses knew from the get-go that they would steal that money, and they knew that the program was created in such a way as to enable them to, because they made sure that they had enough people in Congress in their pocket to create those loopholes, and they know they've got the entire executive branch working for them at this point. So this was never going to turn out any other way without massive public pressure. And unfortunately, all of that got backloaded only after the money ran out. And suddenly these companies all pretended to realize all of a sudden that there was a limit on how much money was available. And that limit has resulted in calls for a second bill, a second bailout, if you will, to because the first bill wasn't enough. So now they Congress has to go back and write new legislation to help cover the crisis probably for another month or so because we know they aren't just going to make it an open-ended bill. And one thing that we're seeing as this new bill takes shape is that the Republican demand is for liability protections towards companies. That is to say, if you um, are still open during this, if you are still employing people, those people can't sue you if it's discovered that they got coronavirus from their workplace or or that you specifically had unsafe conditions for them to be working in. Yeah. Yep. Um, I don't know if, I mean, 
I, I think I think what it is is um the the way that Mitch McConnell phrased this one was that you know the trial lawyers are sharpening their pencils. And it felt very 90s because I remember hearing a lot about tort reform in that in those years. Uh mind you, I was nine, so I didn't I, I thought a tort <laughs> was like a pastry. What the heck is a tort? Lawyers were a very big butt of joke on 90s sitcoms. They really were. And and in the two thousands it I wonder how conspiratorial this goes because in the 2000s, then it was all tort reform. And again, I still thought it was a pastry. So, but yeah, you know, I just thought lawyers were very big into ensuring that their, their bakes were the right shape. Um, Mm -hmm. But there's this idea that, you know, if you're a business owner and you've made an effort and we're not going to talk about how big the effort is, um, you should be immune from all prosecution forever. Like in other countries, this is the kind of protection that you attach to like the head of state so that they can't get sued for doing actions that they thought at the time were in the national interest and so on. In the US, we give that to like the owner of a car dealership um, Mm -hmm. who is, you know, knows that he's a petty tyrant. Like I've I've mentioned before on this show that um, when they moved the mailroom at the school I work at, that somehow the OSHA poster didn't get brought uh, around to the new one until about a month later and things like that. Like These are the kind of things that workplaces do, that bosses do. They don't care about their employees. They just don't. And the more that they say they do, the more you know they don't because they wouldn't feel the need to mention it if there was any doubt about it. So- all Mitch McConnell is 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 uh, all the Senate Republicans are saying here is ultimately we want to ensure that the petty tyrants of the world can continue to have all the control in the world over their employees, but we don't actually want them to suffer the consequences that should come with having that much control. If you want to be responsible for somebody's entire situation, then it is your responsibility to take the blame when something happens to them. But they don't want that because then their egos might be wounded. Because then their bank accounts might be wounded, I suppose. But that really is, you know, their ego. Um, That's true. One company that was cited specifically in reference to this uh, liability shield is uh, Tyson Foods, which um, makes has all sorts of chicken plants and I think some other meats as well. But um, the meat – They have the meats. <laughs> the uh, meat processing industry has been hit hard by this virus because these plants that were never safe – working conditions to begin with have a lot of workers um, crowded together and a lot of workers getting sick, which means, you know, even more workers ostensibly needing quarantine. And there have been some concern that there might be a meat shortage that results from all of these, you know, workers being unable to work. And what I think the Trump administration has said that these uh, plants have to stay open now, um, Mm-hmm. No matter the consequences, which um, we know that will not end well for the workers actually doing the work of, you know, putting food on people's tables, I guess. Yeah, I think the um, meat plant that I mentioned last episode is now up to 900 cases. Jesus Christ. Um, so that's, yeah, it's, it's, it's doubled in a week then. Yeah, it, it's incredibly sad um, because the conditions are already horrendous. Um, and now like basically what McConnell 
is trying to push through with this this protection for businesses from being sued is the ability to force people to go back to work and and not complain without about any consequences. It. Yeah. yeah, and not complain about it. Um, because like let's say they they you know we open now but we could sue our workers. Businesses would be probably a little more cautious and rightly so. And the that article that you sent Ryan was trying to make the case that there needs to be a balance between making businesses feel safe and worker safeties. And one of these things matters and the other one is garbage. Um, I'll allow you guys to guess which ones. Specifically, the article is one from the New York Times with headline, businesses seek sweeping shield from pandemic liability before they reopen. And of course, some of these companies are already open and they have already exposed their employees to risk. But Yeah, I, I saw an article this week about a Walmart in, I want to say Massachusetts, um, that was forced to close by the town it's in um, because it had a had 19 workers in its store um, get diagnosed with COVID. Uh, the first one came like had a positive test on April 9th and then several more in uh, the week before they were forced close. So yeah, this is absolutely that something that workers should be allowed to sue their, their workplace if they're not being safe. And granted, there is basically nothing in the current labor administration, you know, throughout all of Trump's presidency that would be hospitable to suing your workplace. Um, Cause we've talked about that at length mm -hmm. that uh, there's basically no recourse if your workplace is unsafe or, um, acting not in not fairly um there's nothing you can do about it but i think the idea that customers and consumers could then sue you for um doing this kind of thing that's that's what's pushing this kind of legislation that mcconnell wants and um because who cares about the workers like the workers don't it doesn't matter if they sue you basically they don't have any rights anyway but if you're a consumer, you know, the person that upon whom supposedly the economy rests, if they get exposed because your workers are sick, well, then that's actually a problem. Well, and see, in a just world, what would happen to companies like Tyson and so on is that they would get sued and turned into cooperatives. Like ultimately, that's the kind ultimately that kind of work, as the adjective essential implies will still need to get done basically no matter how bad things get. But the real worry that these people have is that it'll get done by an empowered working class as opposed to by a cowed one, one that has been forced to go back to work as, uh, as, as Lou and Ryan, as you guys were saying, uh, one that has been uh, stripped of what remaining power it had left at this point, which isn't much, and one that has been essentially... Um, just forced to continue contributing to the to the Dow Jones Industrial Average, you know, the rich people's emotional index um, throughout this crisis, 
because we have set up this giant meat grinder of a society and now we're just refusing to not feed more and more people and feed them faster and harder into its maw. Sort of to sum up this whole episode, we've discussed how uh, there's this pressure from Republicans to reopen the economy, you know, at great risk to the people who will work in that economy due to the fact that they're unwilling to provide people with the financial need, means to survive a prolonged lockdown. And we have talked about how the means they have provide have been, you know, taken, uh, I don't want to say accidentally, because we know this was part of the point, by, you know, the richest companies in, in the country, the companies that are not at danger the way these loans were ostensibly intended for. So not to be too bleak, but, you know, we're in a crisis that uh, could lead to a world that is much worse for workers on the tail end, you know, when we get out of this. Yeah, I, I, I've, yeah, I've said that from the the start when we started talking about this stuff, is that the capital class is once again going to use this as a the mechanism by which they fire more workers, make more people contractors, give us fewer rights. And, you know, I'm just curious to see how far they'll be able to push us before um, we change things. And that's the thing. I think there is a stunning lack of vision in that regard. This should be the time to think big and uh, to to try to actually change things on a systematic level. And it's understandable why people don't want to think about that and want to think about a return to normalcy. But the thing is, normalcy sucks for a lot of people. Normalcy was already bad. And now we have the chance to wipe all of that out and start working on something that might actually treat uh, a, a much bigger portion of the uh, population of the United States in a more just way. But I have, unfortunately, right now, very little confidence that the culture and the society that we've set up can actually handle that. I think that's very well put. And um, we're going to end on that note today. Sorry that we don't have a positive third segment here. Um, try to imagine something better in your minds, because right now we can't really provide that. That's your homework. Um, for this Isn't week, that my line? <laughs> for this week, I'm Ryan. I'm Noah. And I'm Lou. This is Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.